The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, it's our privilege just to continue in our worship together now as we look to God's Word. We're looking at James chapter 2. <clears throat> We're in a section uh, 14 through 26, which is actually a unit or a theme that all goes together. As we've been going through the book of James, uh, section by section, uh, James, former pastor, or was a pastor in Jerusalem with the early church there, Jewish Christians, and maybe ten years into the early church, there were a lot of things that, trials that came upon the early church in Jerusalem that caused many of these believers to leave the area and spread, whether it was persecution, a uh, famine, uh, some pilgrims that were residing in Jerusalem decided to go back to where they came from. And so now James writes this letter to people who used to be in his congregation who are now spread abroad all over the place 10, 15 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And Pastor James has gotten word back from different sources about how the saints are doing. And they're having temptations and they're having trials, which is normal in the Christian life. And a lot of those trials and temptations are stemming from maybe some of their frustration or disillusionment that, wow, Jesus hasn't returned yet. It's been 10 and 15 years and he said he was going to come back quickly. I thought it was going to be like uh, two weeks later and 10, 15 years goes by. So some of, their, some of them are becoming a little discouraged trying to figure it out. Why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Some are getting entrenched in the world, which is a temptation for all Christians. And so many were losing focus at times, maybe having lost their zeal from when they were first new believers, which happens to many of us. And so James is giving kind of a shot in the arm uh, to rekindle their fire and their passion and their priorities as Christians. And so that's why this book is so appropriate for us as a church, because we all need this as a congregation. If you've been a Christian for any number of years, you need to be re-encouraged, revitalized, reminded, refocused. All of us do. So this is great for James to do that. And, and his uh, book is just punctuated with all these uh, commands and imperatives uh, to be busy about the work of the kingdom of God, not to be apathetic or lethargic or giving up. He's echoing the words of the Apostle Paul, really, in 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul said, basically, you know, not to, to give up, but always to be abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor and your toil in the Lord is not in vain. You serve God. So we need to remember that. So these are great reminders from James. And some of the apathy and lethargy that James has either observed or he's heard going on among these saints is they had become probably more self-focused rather than other-oriented, which may be the way they used to be. And as a result, they're not ministering to people the way they should as Christians. They're not doing good works of service on a regular basis that are just basic priorities of the Christian life. And that's why in chapter 1 at the end he talks about your professing believers. Many of you no doubt are real born-again Christians and yet you're religious and now some of your religion is without basic works that should be attending your faith as a Christian like some of the most basic things of attending to the needy and the widows, children, the orphans, the poor. That should just be natural for Christians and for a church. Doing good works in the name of the Lord, meeting the needs of other people. That is basic Christianity. And so with those reminders, he transitions into chapter 2. And there are some in the congregations, as Jesus promised, 
who have a profession of faith but probably aren't born again. They aren't regenerate. They are pseudo-Christians. They're false Christians. They're probably actually self-deceived. They think they're Christians. And they don't even realize that they're not. Like Judas. Judas was not saved, but he thought he was a believer. And so, James is going to be talking now to the congregations to kind of zero in on those folks who may have a false profession of faith and that their Christianity is pretty much all head knowledge and words. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus. And so, James takes on that lifestyle, that wrong understanding, that superficial faith, and he calls it dead faith, and he tries to expose it, and he gives Christians some litmus tests by which we can diagnose our own faith to see if it's real and genuine, and also to do a diagnostic of our congregations, our churches, to make sure that Christians are aware of how they should be living. And so that's really the theme of James 2, 14 through 26, where he begins to talk about the true nature of saving faith, because there is also a counterfeit faith. There is a false faith that James calls empty faith. He calls it dead faith, and it's a counterfeit faith. And many times it is impossible for us as human beings who are finite and fallen to discern between the two. What is genuine? What is real? Only God knows the hearts, right? We look on the outside, God looks at the heart. But James argues that true saving faith, supernatural regeneration, is always going to be attended by or followed by godly works in the life of a believer. And that's what he's arguing here from 14 to 26. And we already looked at how He made a distinction and said, uh, verse 14, this was his challenge. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, you've got a professing Christians, but he has no good works to go along with it. He just has a profession of faith and his life hasn't been changed. He has a profession of Christianity, but he has no good works issuing in his life. And James says, what good is it? And James goes on to say, that is worthless. You say you have faith, you say you believe in God, but what good is that? Did you know that Satan and his demons even believe in God? It's got to be more than that. So that's kind of his, uh, that's how he starts off the argument, and he's just developing this step by step all the way to verse 26. And his main argument is if you're a true Christian, you have supernatural faith that allowed you to believe in the gospel, which regenerated you and made you become born again, a new creature, and as a result of being a new creature, There's going to be a new lifestyle, a new worldview, new thoughts, new attitudes, new words, and new actions. It will be godly, and they will issue from your life. And you will give off fruit that is discernible and manifest and tangible for people to see that, yes, your works and your attitudes in your life is consistent with your profession as a Christian. So uh, he's developing this argument. We picked up in verse 21 last week. Uh, 21 to 23. I had four points, and I cut it short uh, of my four points. I only dealt with the first point because this is so important, uh, James 14 through 26. And it's important for many reasons. I mentioned this last week that this is the most difficult passage in the book of James, 14 through 26. Very challenging, very confusing. One of the things that makes it challenging and confusing is even the way some of the verses are translated based on the Greek words. Another thing that makes it challenging and confusing is the, the, the nature of the topic. How faith relates to works. That is a, a huge challenge from a theological, religious, and Christian point of view. How do faith and works relate together legitimately? And this has, been, this has created a dilemma 
for Christians for 2,000 years. So this, trying to understand that and how you integrate faith and works or how they're related to one another and how we figure that out, that's not a new challenge for the church. It's been going on for 2,000 years. It was a problem in the early church. As a matter of fact, uh, I just want to show you. Uh, look at Galatians. If you go uh, back towards your beginning of your New Testament there, the epistle of Galatians, written by the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and then Galatians. <clears throat> what is the proper relationship of works and faith? And I said it's been a controversy or hard to deal with. Finding, see, the trick is finding the balance. Because even in the Christian world today, even in Protestant denominations, uh, there are evidences of having a lack of balance of how you perceive the role of faith and the role of works. Last week I referred to a non-lordship salvation view in Christianity that tries to separate works from faith. They put a big emphasis on you're saved by grace, you're saved by faith, it is not by works, and they kind of overreacted trying to protect the gospel from works, because we don't want works involved in the gospel. But they went to kind of an extreme and saying that not only is works not a part of the gospel, works doesn't even really necessarily need to be a part of your life ever. It's it's very possible you could live your whole Christian life without works. That's what kind of what we talked about last week. That's one extreme. That's been called by many names all throughout church history, from easy believism to antinomianism which many times the fruit of that is permissiveness in the church community, which many times manifests itself in gross immorality. Examples in the New Testament would be the, the Corinthian church. They were kind of an easy believism kind of a church. So they would be on that polar extreme. But there were believers in those congregations. And genuine Christians struggle with that and sometimes lean in that direction. But then there's the other extreme where you put too much of an emphasis as a Christian on works to where you get legalistic. So then there's legalistic Christianity. That's on the polar opposite end of easy believism. That by works, you can be sanctified. By doing good works, you can please God. By doing good works, you can earn God's favor. That's on the other end. And that many times, Christians who are legalistic, they struggle on that end of the spectrum. So you need the balance. And all throughout church history, putting too much emphasis on works to earn favor with God, whether in justification or sanctification, has resulted in things like sacramentalism, where literally you're incorporating works in the gospel in order to be saved. And the church has been guilty of that for 2,000 years. And there are segments of the church that is guilty of that today. For example, in a modern Protestant, Protestant denomination that believes that baptism is part of the gospel, and it's called baptismal regeneration. And that's where you're taking the gospel of Christ and mixing a good work, which is baptism, in with the gospel and saving you can't be saved unless you're, you have to believe in Jesus, believe in the gospel. He died and rose again. He died for you. You confess your sins, but you also have to be baptized in order to be saved. There are Protestant Christians who believe that formally is their doctrine, and that's incorporating works illegitimately. That's losing balance of faith and works. So, see, we have these polar extremes. So the challenge is to be a balanced Christian, accurately understanding Scripture and the Gospel and the relationship between faith and works. And that's really what James is arguing for here. And Paul does the same 
in his epistles. But here, look at even the Apostle Peter struggled with this. Every single one of us struggles on one extreme or the other in terms of uh, the spectrum of our view of faith or works. And here you have Peter raised as a rigid, uh, law-abiding Jew who got saved. And then even as an apostle and a leader of the church, still had some hangover of this legalistic mindset at times. And that's the context of Galatians 2. So look at this. Imagine this. James, one of, I mean Peter, one of the foundation leaders of the early church. The authority. The head of the twelve apostles. Had some interaction with the apostle Paul after Paul got saved. And Paul is commissioned now as an apostle of the Gentiles. Peter's the, the apostle of the Jews. And so Paul talks about, and he's reminiscing back, you know, 15 years of when he first met Peter. And one very important interaction they had in the early church on this issue of faith and works and getting the balance right. And here he indicts Peter, the apostle, head of the church, for not having the balance right and even compromising over the nature of the gospel and the nature of how faith and works relate. And he he slipped up and was a public hypocrite for the entire church. Now, Peter, the apostle, can do that. We can all fall prey to that, can't we? So it's a really good lesson uh, to take warning from. So let's go ahead and look at Galatians 2. Uh, starting at verse 1, Paul said, Then after an interval of about 14 years after he got saved, I went up to Jerusalem to the head church where James was, where Peter was, twelve apostles. I went with Barnabas, my partner. Titus, my other partner. Went up there. We heard about the reputation of these stellar apostles who laid the foundation of the church. Uh, verse 7, but on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter with the gospel to the circumcised. Verse 8, for he, God, who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised Jews, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. Verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me as an apostle, James and Cephas, which is also Peter, and John, the apostle, who were reputed to be pillars So those three guys were kind of the three pillars in the early church. James, Peter, or Cephas, and John the Apostle. Um, Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. So these three leaders of the early church in Jerusalem, they welcomed Paul and Barnabas. They heard about his reputation, his fantastic ministry, how God was blessing with the Gentiles all over that area. So they greeted him warmly and welcomed him into the fellowship of Jerusalem. Verse 10, Then only, oh, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. Verse 11, But, but, uh-oh, Houston, we, we're about to have a problem. But when Cephas, Peter, the main man, came to Antioch, Antioch was a city where the Apostle Paul started out as an early minister of the Word of God and where he actually pastored for a while before he went off and did his missionary journeys. This was kind of one of his home church. This is his home turf with believing Gentiles. And Peter comes to make a visit. And he he wasn't necessarily greeted warmly at one point by Paul. Look at this. But when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch to talk, I opposed him to his face. Wow! One pastor to another pastor who were brothers in the Lord at the same church and this is publicly, Paul rebukes Peter to the face. 
well, that wasn't very nice, Paul. Well, actually it was. He was speaking the truth in love and it needed to be done. Because this wasn't an issue of disagreeing over the color of the carpet or the flavor of the music. Is it hymns or choruses? The piano or the guitar? Those are all superficial and preferences. This is over a doctrinal issue. And not just a doctrinal issue. This is over the nature of the Gospel and how people get saved. This was There was no greater issue at stake. And that's why Paul was compelled by the Spirit of God to rebuke Peter to his face. By the way, that takes courage, doesn't it? It's easy to complain about somebody behind their back, isn't it? And do this. Gossip, gossip, gossip. You want to destroy a church faster than anything else, start gossiping about other believers in the church, including the leadership. And you will give Satan a foothold and destroy it. So Paul is a great model here. He loved Peter. He loved the truth. Um, He loved both, but he knew where the line was, and he had to oppose Peter to the face because it was a public scandal. He's not doing Matthew 18, step one, privately. Peter sinned publicly as a leader of the church in front of everybody. Therefore, this warranted public rebuke, which is consistent with 1 Timothy 5. I opposed him to the face. Well, what did he do, Paul? Well, because he stood condemned. Verse 12, here's what, he, here's what Peter did. For prior, to coming, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, uh, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. See, these were Gentiles who got saved, and they were Christians. And so now Peter who before he got saved and growing up his whole life as a Jew, didn't mingle with Gentiles because he thought they were unclean. They were dirty. They had the cooties. That's the way Peter understood the Old Testament law. But then when he got saved and became a Christian, he came to realize that Jesus is the Savior not just of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles, of every race, every people that would put their faith in Jesus Christ. And no matter who it is, whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew and a Gentile, and you put your faith in Christ, you're adopted into the family of God. And so Jesus really had to shake Peter up in Acts chapter 10 and say, uh, rise, kill, and eat. Peter, Gentiles who get saved, they are clean. They're brothers and sisters with you. They are one in the Lord. Quit being uh, prejudiced towards non-Jewish believers. Put that behind you. And Peter got the message and he understood that. And he said, okay, Lord. And he submitted, but he still struggled. And he stumbled. And here, he stumbled. So here he is having fellowship, which is a good thing, with believing Gentiles, non-Jews, which he wouldn't have done earlier in his life. So for prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw. So then, when these, these Jewish believers came, these influential Jewish believers came, these prejudiced, professed Jewish believers who didn't like Gentiles came. Peter was influenced by those guys. And he thought, oh, these guys don't like Gentiles. I better not eat with these guys. And Peter withdrew from the believing Gentiles and was influenced by these judgmental, professed Jewish believers who didn't like Gentiles. And as a result, Peter compromised. He sinned. And he betrayed his fellow believing Gentiles. By being prejudiced towards them and making wrong requirements of them. That's what he's talking about. But when they came, Peter began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Well, who were the party of the circumcision? These were professing believers in Jesus 
who were Jewish who were saying that Gentiles, in order to become Christians, they had to believe in the gospel plus do good works. And what was the good work? They had to believe in the gospel of Jesus and also be circumcised. That would be like today we have a Protestant denomination or two that says you need to believe in the gospel of Jesus and be baptized. So it's polluting the purity of the gospel. It's adding works to the gospel. The gospel is by grace through faith. Is circumcision a good thing or a bad thing? Don't answer out loud. You might embarrass yourself. Is circumcision a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it was commanded by God, right? In the Old Testament, Genesis 17, God gave it and He intended it to be a good thing, but for a specific purpose. But when God gives a good thing and it's used the wrong way, then it's a bad thing. So they are misusing circumcision and the law that God gave. And they polluted Peter. They influenced him in the wrong way. And so Peter now was advocating adding to the gospel of grace by doing good works. And he was doing this publicly. Betraying himself. And that's why Paul was upset. Peter, do you realize you're a leader of the church? You're an apostle and you are compromising. You're tampering with the purity of the gospel. I mean, there's no greater compromise. The gospel. How to be saved. The message by which we tell unbelievers they can know God. You're polluting it. And you're being a horrible example as a leader in the church. How dare you? It probably wasn't like a real warm and fuzzy conversation. Rebuked him to the face. He stood condemned. Paul was tenacious about guarding the purity and the simplicity of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, which is by grace through faith, belief in the the person, the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the powerful resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who offers salvation to sinners who simply believe in Him and His Gospel. No human works attached whatsoever. And so Paul was committed to guarding the purity because that was the foundation of everything. He guarded it so tenaciously. Stay in the book of Galatians and look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Not only did Peter struggle with this, Compromise of adding works to the gospel. The Galatian church struggled with this because they were influenced by these same party of the circumcision. And Paul knew it. Remember I said the Corinthians were the permissive ones, the easy believing Christian congregation? The Galatians are the polar opposite. They're, they're tampering with God. They're trying to add works to the gospel and works to sanctification. They're the legalists. And it's a church full of believers who are out of balance. And listen to what Paul says in Galatians 1.6. I am amazed. I can't believe this Paul saying because Paul went into Galatia, preached the gospel for many weeks, probably many months, saw people get saved. He started a church. He trained up leadership. He stayed there for quite some time. He left. He came back to see how they're doing, nurturing them, loved them, gave his life for them. He's their former pastor. Years go by and now they've compromised Not on the color of the carpet or the sound of the music. On the gospel itself. He can't believe it. So that's why he's amazed. He is dismayed. Chapter 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him. God, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Wow, you're adding works to the gospel. Verse 7, which is really not another. It's not a gospel. It is not good news. When you have to start adding human works, human behavior, human merit... To the gospel message, it's no longer the gospel's not good news. 
Because good news is that God does everything to save you and me. It's not good news to say that some sinner has to try to save themselves, because that is impossible. That's why I said it is not good news. It is not a gospel. That is bad news, which is really not another gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you with false teaching and want to distort. Here it is. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. And that's the gravest concern there is, to distort the very gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the foundation of everything. Verse 8, but even though we, the apostles, are an angel from heaven. See, even though we, the apostles, even if it's Peter himself that gives this doctrine that compromises on the gospel, do not believe it. But even though we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, it is by grace, through faith alone, apart from works. If somebody compromises on that at any time, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be condemned. Isn't that strong language? Because it's the gospel at stake. Verse 9, he repeats it again. Verse 9. As we've said before, so I'm saying now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. So, the point is, there was a theological controversy that arose in the church among good friends and leaders of the church, and it was evolving around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because that is the most important issue, it needed a sound, clear public rebuke, clarification. Names were called out. Personalities were called out. The record was set straight. So let's go back to James chapter 2. So my thinking was, I, I promised to get to point 2 from last week. But as humans, we are naturally promise breakers. Uh, at least I am. Because... I've been preaching at GBF for five years, and so I don't know how many sermons that was. Uh, I did the math at one point, 250 sermons or whatever. And week by week goes by, and it's kind of interesting as you, you preach a sermon. You never know what the reaction is going to be. Sometimes you get a lot of verbal feedback. Sometimes you get emails. Sometimes on sermons you get no feedback whatsoever. That's kind of scary. Not one person made a comment. Hmm, what does that mean? Um, but every once in a while... You'll preach a sermon and then you get a lot of feedback. Well, the sermon from last week was like that. I got a lot of feedback. And it was actually, I considered it all good. It was great feedback. There was verbal feedback. I even got feedback this morning, verbal feedback. Uh, so with a lot of good feedback, and in that was, I mean, the comments like, wow, I learned a lot. Wow, God has protected me at the last churches I've been at for the last 20 years because I wasn't even aware of this issue. And we just always had good Bible teaching. Thank God for the pastors that protected us with the purity of doctrine, those kind of questions. Uh, and then there were a whole bunch of other practical questions regarding this issue. And so I really want, and I'm thinking, okay, if I'm getting this uh, amount of feedback at this level and these people are actually voicing these questions, then no doubt they represent a larger group who are probably thinking through and have the same questions. So I thought we need to slow down because this issue is so important. We need to address these issues. There are a lot of tangential intersecting issues that go along with faith and works regarding this topic that will be very practical for our Christian life. And those are the things that I would like to address. And I was, as I was thinking and praying this week to prepare, I think about what were, in the last 50 years, I personally believe there are two theological controversies uh, that ripped through the church uh, in ways that no other theological controversies are. And we're still dealing with the reverberations and the aftermath of those theological controversies. And one of them was the charismatic issue. 
It polarized a lot of people, professing Christians. Uh, it also clarified, I think, a lot of issues. It made Christians dig deeper into Scripture, which is always a good thing. By the way, a theological controversy is not always a bad thing. We shouldn't shy away from it. As a matter of fact, God uses theological controversies and other factions and schisms among Christians to grow the church, to make Christians go deeper, to be Bereans of the Word of God. As a matter of fact, this is a real important verse. I do want you to look at 1 Corinthians uh, right now, chapter 11. This is a just a short, distilled theology of controversy among believers. Because you need a theology of controversy. How do you deal with controversy in the church among believers? It's important. You've got to know how to deal with it. I, my wife and I have been married for 23 years and we were reflecting on some of the, the most... Uh, I don't know how you call it, uh, disagreements that we've had over our 23, year in, 23 years of marriage and have any that stand out as just deep disagreements we've had. And clearly for me there's one, and it's when we were, I think we were either engaged or just about to get married, and we had this vicious disagreement over who the author of Hebrews was. <laughs> Seriously. I don't like that, and it's kind of funny. But anyway. Um, but... The idea is you can be the best of friends or fellow believers and you're going to clash every once in a while and you've got to have a biblical theology and mindset of how to deal with controversy in the church. And one thing you don't want to do is shy away from it. That's not a right response. And then the other extreme is being hypercritical. You don't want to do that either. So God helps us out through the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18 and 19. He says, well, for in the first place, by the way, Paul writes this letter of 16 chapters to, they, they were messed up, the Corinthians. So everything about this epistle is trying to straighten out their problems. Man, you, got, you guys got personal problems, you've got relational problems, you've got theological problems, you are one messed up church, but they were believers. A church that Paul had pastored, and he said, verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together corporately as believers, as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. When you come together as a local church, I hear there are schisms among you. Can you imagine that in a local church? As a church, I hear that there are divisions, literally schisms, that exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Now, here is key, verse 19. For there must be factions among you. There needs to be schisms in the church. There needs to be. There must be. That is imperative. It is a necessity. Wow, Paul, that doesn't sound very loving or unified. Well, there's a reason for it. For there must also be factions among you in order that... It serves a purpose in the church, by the way. In order that those who are approved, they have become evident among you. There it is. Whenever you have a schism in the church, a faction, whether it's a personal one, a relational one, or a theological one, because the Corinthians, they had theological schisms over the, what they believed about the resurrection, what they believed about the charismatic issue, and these created divisions in the church. And Paul said, you know what? In the big picture of things, these are good things. God is going to use this schism to allow truth to surface. That's what it does. That's what divisions do. That's what theological controversies do. They allow truth to surface. So, going back, I didn't forget... The two biggest theological controversies in the last 50 years of the church, I believe, in my personal opinion, was the charismatic issue, and then the other one was the lordship, non-lordship issue that I mentioned last week. And the reason the lordship, uh, non-lordship issue was one of the most important was because it had to do with the nature of the gospel. 
Again, this was not a peripheral, preferential matter. It is what is the gospel? What do people have to believe in order to be saved? You can't get any more important than that. So we can't sidestep the issue. And James will really clarify in our mind the relationship between faith and works so that hopefully in our own mind we can be discerning on that very issue and hopefully on other issues. Okay, let's go back to James chapter 2. Just a review of some things that I think were important last week to set the context for verse 21 through 23 so that we're not confused as we're going. Because if you just look at it at face value, by way of reminder, look at verse 21 of James 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? That statement taken by itself makes it sound like was not Abraham saved by doing good works? Then he says it again in verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works. Whoa! That's just the opposite of what Paul said in Galatians where he said man is not justified by works, but he's justified by grace through faith in Christ. So uh, we've got to set the context straight here in James chapter 2. So we understand those two verses properly. And so that's what we tried to do last week. So by way of reminder, some things we covered, especially if you weren't here. um, Notice James is talking about the true nature of faith. And his argument is that if you're truly a believer, at some point in your life, you're going to have good works issuing from your life. And his prime example is Abraham. Abraham was a believer. And Abraham had good works issuing from his life. And then he refers to two specific events in the life of Abraham. The first event was in verse 21, where he says, When Abraham offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. That event happened in Genesis 22 when Abraham was maybe 120 years old almost. The reason that's significant is because that is about 30 years after Abraham got saved. Genesis 15:6 says that Abraham got saved when he believed God at his word. Abraham didn't get saved by works. He got saved by believing in God and God's good news. So Abraham was saved at age 86. And then 30 years later, James refers to this incident in verse 21 of James 2, saying that Abraham did good works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. He wasn't saying that Abraham got saved for the first time with this incident. He's saying that Abraham was acting like a righteous man. He was doing works consistent with what was on the inside. So you've got to make a distinction between the two events mentioned in James 2 regarding Abraham. The first one in verse 21 from Genesis 22 when Abraham was already saved 30 years after he got saved. Then the second incident he refers to, which we're going to look at more detail next week, is verse 23 when he says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is right out of Genesis 15 when Abraham was 86 years old where it says he became a believer. And then Paul reiterates that in Galatians and in Romans where he says that is indeed where Abraham got saved for the first time. He was justified. He became a believer age 86. So it is clear from Scripture and even from James that verse 21 is not saying that uh, Abraham got saved for the first time when he offered up Isaac on the altar. So that's part of the context uh, that we need to understand. The next important thing we, need, we dealt with last week was dealing with the word justified in verse 21 and verse 24. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? And I said last week that justified, that is translated in your English Bible, unless, of course, you have an NIV Bible. Can you raise your hand if you have an NIV Bible? Okay, go ahead and put it down. See, everybody's always picking on the NIV Bible. Actually, the NIV on this verse or with this word almost got it right because it doesn't use the word justified. It uses the word righteous which is actually closer to the truth in context here. Which helps 
almost helps bring clarity, but uh, it just isn't worded the best that it can be worded, so it still might cause some confusion. Uh, but we have to deal with the word justified in verse 21. Was, uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works? And the Greek word for justified, we said, was from dikaiao. Wrote it down there for you. It's a Greek word. You can't translate it the same way all the time. You just can't do that. You can't do that with any word. The meaning of any word is always determined by the context. And so dikaiao is a verb, and it's, got, it's used many times in the New Testament, and it has two meanings. And there are two different meanings. And the meanings are always determined by the context. And so we showed last week, and I want to actually I want to I want you to see it with your own eyes and go there in first Timothy chapter three. Not second Timothy chapter three. I think I gave a couple of wrong verse addresses last week. So first Timothy chapter three. Keep your finger in James two where every English translation that I looked at, except for the NIV translates the verb dikaiao in chapter 2, verse 21, is justified. And yet, when it's the exact same verb in the exact same form in 1 Timothy 3.16, no English translations that I read translated the same word as justified. They chose a different word because they knew it meant something different because the context was determining a different meaning. So this is talking about Jesus. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, an early Christian hymn probably. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is this mystery about the coming of Jesus Christ, the God-man from heaven as He came down here and took on a human body and lived among us and rose again and ascended back on high, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's an early Christian hymn talking about Jesus, He who was revealed in the flesh. See, that's God became a man. And He lived here for 33 years. And it says, He was vindicated in the Spirit. Or literally, He was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, the word vindicated in the New American Standard is the exact same word translated as justified in James 2.21 in the New American Standard. So, for whatever reason, the New American Standard people decided to translate the same word two different ways. And they believed accurately and legitimately that that same word cannot be translated as justified in 1 Timothy 3.16 because otherwise it would say He was justified by the Spirit. Meaning, Jesus was justified by the Holy Spirit when He became a man. Meaning that Jesus was saved by the Holy Spirit when He came down to earth. We know that cannot be true. Justified means declared righteous by God, totally forgiven of your sins. That's the moment you get saved, the moment you're born again. And so, they know. Context determines the meaning of the word. So that word, dikaiao, doesn't always mean justified and it shouldn't always be translated as justified. And so I argued last week that I would say the best translation for dikaiao is not justified in James 2.21 and 2.24. It is the same word here. Vindicated. Validated. Or as one Greek scholar says, shown to be righteous. His righteousness was made manifest after the fact. Because he was saved by invisible faith which no one can see except God. And so his invisible faith has to be made manifest for humans to see after he gets saved. And that's shown to be righteous by the righteous deeds that we do. So go back to James chapter 2. So we dealt with dikaiau. The best translation, I believe, is vindicated, validated, shown to be righteous. His faith was made manifest 30 years later, consistent with his profession of faith that he made when he was 86 years old. He's a believer and it's issuing in good works and good deeds, which is true of every Christian. Then, uh, another thing we talked about last week, uh, we just reiterated that salvation 
for justification is not by works, it is by grace through faith apart from works. And we even highlighted how James taught that. Even in his epistle, James chapter 1, he already said, faith was paramount, we're saved by the Word of God, we're saved by God's initiative. James does not teach salvation by works, as some have proposed that he does. And he doesn't contradict Paul at all. Uh, We also talked about... um, Oh, okay. So, and then we talked about how controversial this was for Luther and people throughout history, and it's been a modern day controversy, and it will continue to be the relationship between faith and works. And what are we to learn from this? How are we to deal with this? And so, there's a couple of verses I want to share with all of us to be reminded of. Maybe some of these verses are new to you, maybe they're ones you're familiar with, but we all need to be reminded of them. And that is when we're dealing with these theological controversies that are sensitive in the church. And they polarize genuine believers. Again, this is your theology or mindset of how you interact with fellow believers who hold a different view. Uh, there needs to be a proper balance. And Scripture lays it out beautifully of the proper balance. Probably the most succinctly stated in Ephesians where it says, speak the truth in love, right? You speak the truth. That's the content. But your methodology is doing it in a loving manner, right? With the right attitude, right intentions. And that's a great challenge for all of us. Speak the truth in love. Um, so let's look at a couple of these uh, key verses and then we'll go back to James 2. And that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So Thessalonians by the Apostle Paul, that's in the T section of his epistles. <clears throat> Timothy, just before Timothy. And Titus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And at the end of the epistle, he just uh, has all these imperatives that we need to be reminded of in our Christian life. And he just says simply, uh, verse 21, uh, Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Examine everything carefully. And this is a command to every Christian to be discerning. We do need to scrutinize with the paradigm of Scripture, right? We need to vet everything through the Word of God. Coming down the pike, whether it's a lifestyle, an ideology, a theology, a teaching, whatever it is. And that's what he says. Examine everything carefully, in detail. Hold fast to that which is good. And get rid of the bad stuff. So Christians need to be discerning, but they need to do it in love. Uh, Acts 17, you don't need to turn there, where Paul went into Berea, the city of Berea. He preached the gospel They received the Word of God. They received the Gospel. But it says they were noble-minded. They were uh, obedient. They were pleasing to God. And one of the things that they did was virtuous was they took the Word of God, the Scripture as they know it, and they examined everything carefully that Paul was teaching to make sure what Paul said was accurate. So they they were even vetting the Apostle Paul through the grid of Scripture. How much more should every other human being be vetted through the grid of Scripture? So that's important. So we need to be Bereans, be discerning, and God's Word is the standard. We need to get away from this uh, cult mentality, which is so prevalent in Christianity. It always seems to be, it was in Corinth, of having allegiance and loyalty to a man, to a personality, to an institution, to a seminary, to a movement. We can't do that. That's very dangerous. Our loyalty and allegiance should only be to the Lord Jesus Christ and to His truth, right? To Jesus Christ and His truth alone. I see this all the time because I teach at a seminary. And in seminary, you got you know young men that are either pastoring or aspiring to be pastors, and it is very prevalent to see this uh, dominating allegiance to a man. 
to the, you know, uh, I am of MacArthur, I am of Swindoll, I am of Piper, I am of Mahaney, I am of Driscoll, I am of, I see that all the time with the seminary students. And I understand that because I was just like that when I was in seminary. But it's very dangerous. It is polarizing. It is actually, one of those epistles uh, ends with, all glory, praise and honor belongs to God alone. And yet it's so easy for us to esteem our favorite Bible teacher, isn't it? And give them praise, which is violating Scripture and creating cults and factions, which is wrong. So we need to heed Scripture where it says we we can't be doing that. This week, uh, a a believer who I interact with pretty regularly, uh, we met face to face and their first question to me was, so what do you think of Rick Warren? And I knew that was a trap and I didn't fall for it. Because I knew what his answer was and I knew what he would say. And I said, well, I believe Rick Warren's a Christian. And I, I think Rick Warren's going to heaven. As a matter of fact, when I, I think when Rick Warren is in heaven, he's going to be perfect. And this, this guy, he was very disappointed in my answer. But he couldn't argue with it. And then he went on to say something else. And I said, well, you didn't ask me that. You said, what do I think of him? That's what I think of him. So the point being is, uh, it is so easy to find a problem with uh, another believer. or the, t- the, the reason I'm bringing this up is because last week I mentioned the Lordship controversy that said that teaches that uh, we shouldn't ask unbelievers to repent of their sin in order to get saved. And also the Lordship view that teaches that salvation in the Old Testament was by works, but salvation in the New Testament is by grace through faith. And that has just filtered all throughout the church in America, and there was a whole controversy that went on for two decades about it. And I actually mentioned the origin of this was in the C.I. Schofield Study Bible from C.I. Schofield, a key founder of Dallas Seminary. So some of you may be thinking, should I throw away my C.I. Schofield Study Bible? And I would say no. Keep it. I have a Schofield Study Bible. It's got a lot of good stuff in it. And you can be blessed by God. And just when you have a study Bible, the MacArthur Study Bible, the Sproul Study Bible, the Schofield Study Bible, the Ryrie Study Bible, just remember that the notes written by the author below are not inspired. The Scripture at the top of the page is inspired. So hopefully that will help you. And as you're reading through your study Bible, keep that in mind. It was written by some finite uh, fallen sinner doing the best that he can to help you out growing in the faith. And then when he says something like, uh, salvation in the Old Testament was by works, then you can just take your pen and scratch it out and say, no, it isn't. And then you go on to the next one where he makes a good comment. Thank you very much. <laughs> or the Ryrie Study Bible, when you get to Matthew 5 and 7 and says, uh, Matthew 5 and 7 and the Sermon on the Mount is not for the church age or for Christians. It was for people during, living only during Jesus' days. And then you write, wow, no, it's not. That is not true. This is for me. Or in the MacArthur Study Bible. It's got his things as well. So that's the point. Be discerning. Uh, so you don't need to throw away your Ryrie Study Bible, your Schofield Study Bible. Um, do not give allegiance and loyalty to men. Give allegiance and loyalty to God. And remember that great verse by the Apostle Paul who said, Let God be true and every man a liar. What a great, sobering rebuke and reminder for all of us, isn't it? Puts us in our place regarding God, His Word, and His truth. Uh, with that, uh, oh, a couple other questions that were practical um, on this issue. As a matter of fact, okay, well, I covered most of what I wanted to cover. So we will, after this segue, get immediately into points two, three, and four next week, I promise. But what I wanted to do, because uh, I have a few minutes, um, Chin Beckman, who went to our church for 
five years, she was always saying, Pastor Cliff, you need to have a Q&A time someday on a Sunday morning. And I agreed with Jen. And maybe you've been to a church where they do that. Uh, Grace Community Church has been doing it for 40 years and other churches do it all the time where the pastor will just stop and, okay, let's take some Q&A and get real practical and help the people. And I've been to many of those and have been blessed tremendously by them. So uh, I actually thought about that this week and wanted to do that. And It's not 30 minutes, but we got five or plus minutes. But I do want to feel any questions if there are any on this issue because there's just so much stuff. Because it's like the more you teach on it, the more questions it raises. And you can't possibly address them all. But it is vitally important. It's totally practical. It's relevant to key issues in our life, how we relate to the gospel, unbelievers, uh, how we relate to other believers who have different perspectives than we do. So let's go ahead. Five minutes. Anybody got a question? If you do, raise your hand relative to these issues. And I'll try the best of my ability to answer your questions succinctly and to the point. Don't be afraid. Go ahead. I'll give you a minute to think. Some, uh, there's one, Tony, go ahead. Stand up and then let it fly. Translators of the Bible? Yeah, translators of the Bible are not inspired. I know that for a fact because I am a translator of the Bible. Uh, many times, either in my sermons or in my sermon notes or in a book, that I have written, I will actually give my, the McManus translation version of the Greek text that you might not find anywhere else. Uh, but I am not inspired. I am not perfect. I am trying to do the best of my ability based on my understanding of the original language and the context at hand. So, very important distinction. Great question. Translators are not inspired. God's Word is Steve. Yeah, actually, uh, there's a reason that the Lordship issue has gone on for three decades. Because it is a complicated controversy and issue. And it has morphed and changed with times in terms of what the debate was about. That has literally changed. So, if I were to summarize the Lordship controversy, I'd make three simple points. Here's, here's the, and this is a good litmus test for you. If you were to evaluate yourself and decide, okay, am I a Lordship salvationist or a non-Lordship salvationist? Maybe you don't even know that about yourself. Well, here's three questions that will help you determine about you. Uh, the the non-lordship view says, said, and continues to say that when you talk to unbelievers, sharing the gospel with them, you do not call them to repentance. They don't need to repent to be saved. The lordship view says, no, that that's totally wrong. As a matter of fact, we need to evangelize like Jesus evangelized in Mark 1.14 where it said Jesus came preaching and teaching the gospel saying repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1.14 and 15. That's what Jesus said. So the Lordship view says, no, we need to call sinners to repentance. And the non-Lordship says, no, you can't call them to repentance because repentance is a work and you're adding works to the gospel. And we're saying, no, repentance is not a human work. The ability to repent is a supernatural gift from God done through the Spirit of God as He convicts the sinner using the Word of God. It's a supernatural work, not a human work. So uh, your view of repentance and the Gospel. Uh, another major non-Lordship view that came up was that in the Old Testament, believers were saved by works and in the New Testament, they are saved by grace through faith. 
And then the third major issue had to do with sanctification. The non-lordship view says you can become a Christian and just say, I believe in Jesus. Just like that's all you have. You don't even have to believe in the resurrection. You say, I believe in Jesus. Boom, you're a Christian. And for the next 30 years, you may not manifest any good works in your life whatsoever, but you're still a Christian. And, and that shouldn't be questioned by anybody else. So those are the three issues that were really the content of the controversy. And then as people debated the issue, they got into the very thing that Steve was talking about. You know, really what's at stake here is your view of God and Jesus and the Lordship of Christ and yourself as a sinner. And anyway, we've got a couple books on the back table if you wanted to research that more or just Google Lordship Salvation and boom, you'll have enough to read for the next 50 years. Josh. Uh, Okay, so Joshua is asking, uh, what if you're interacting with somebody, family member, whatever? You said Catholic faith, which is interesting because I was reading a Catholic commentary this week to see what their take was on James 2.21. And indeed, they said that part of getting saved is doing good works. So it's salvation by believing in Jesus plus good works that the Catholic Church says you must do, okay? which is works righteousness. And they will point to James 2.21 and 2.24 to do that. Um, and I grew up Catholic. Many of my relatives are Catholic. And um, I would... I would just keep going back to the simple gospel with my Catholic brothers and sisters. Uh, or brothers and sisters, if they're not saved. Uh, they're not my brother and sister. But the simplicity of Jesus Christ. First, I, I always start with Jesus. I don't care what your religion is. If you're an atheist, a Hindu, a Catholic, an unsaved Baptist, it doesn't matter. I'm going to start with this person's understanding. Tell me who you think Jesus is. And if it's clear that they don't believe that Jesus is the God-man, He is eternal, He is the Creator, He is worthy of worship, He is the judge of all men, He is the only way to heaven, then I clarify all those things with them. And I grew up as a Catholic for 19 years, and I didn't really understand any of those things. So that's how I start with Roman Catholics who don't know Christ. Do you really know who Jesus is? The Catholic Church actually has an orthodox view of who Jesus is. So that's your common ground right there. They understand the Trinity properly. And they have a proper teaching of Jesus. Okay, start there. Because usually your average Catholic is clueless about what Scripture really says about Jesus. He is the only Savior. And He is God, eternal God in a body. And then the next thing I ask them is about the nature of the crucifixion to a Roman Catholic. What did Jesus' death on the cross mean and what did it accomplish? And what I'm getting at is, and who punished Jesus on the cross? Because as a Catholic for 19 years, I was never taught at my 12 years of Catholic school, that Jesus was punished by the Father on the cross. I was never taught that. I was always taught it was Satan, it was Pilate, it was Judas, it was the people, it was whatever. And then when I became a Christian and in the Protestant world, and I was uh, told for the first time that God the Father punished Jesus on the cross, that blew me away. I was like, wow, what a concept. I'd never heard of that. God the Father is punishing Jesus. And... Uh, Related to that is, what did Jesus' death accomplish on the cross? For us, according to Scripture, it is He forgave, it accomplishes the forgiveness of all sin, past, present, and future. Whereas Roman Catholic doctrine says, no, it's just some of your sin. It's the sin of Adam. It's original sin. And that's what Jesus' death accomplished. 
And so for the rest of your life, you got Adam's sin is forgiven, but for the rest of your life, you got to keep doing good works and more good works and more good works to forgive future sin that you haven't committed yet because Jesus' death 2,000 years ago doesn't cover your future sins. So they view the death of Christ not as sufficient. And if they want to get off onto peripheral issues, just stay focused on Jesus, the meaning of His death. Are you a sinner? That's just kind of the practical approach. Uh, Kevin. Um, I haven't studied that passage yet. Next question. <laughs> Jeff. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Hebrews 11, verse 31. By the way, Hebrews 11, verse 2. Actually, I'll just read verse 1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, for by faith, people of old gained approval. By faith, people were saved. By faith, the saints in the Old Testament got saved. That is the theme of Hebrews 11. And then it enumerates and delineates all these believers that we know so well who were saved by grace, through faith, through God's initiative, apart from human works. And then in verse 31 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Rahab, the harlot, did not perish. So that's how she got saved. God saved her, boom, through a supernatural revelation of His truth from heaven. She believed it because her heart had been prepared with the Holy Spirit. She was born again, boom. And as soon as she became a Christian, she started doing all these spontaneous acts of godliness, trusting God, protecting His people, um, issuing rather quickly fruits that followed from true faith. Uh, Jeff. Okay. And then we'll take one more, and I think it's lunchtime. Uh, Matthew. Absolutely. Those are good words. Um, so in, that is totally legitimate. And actually doing that might clarify in your mind or make it easy to understand. So Matthew just suggested uh, in James 2.22, would it be legitimate to use words like instead of justified, uh, validate, certify, vindicate, confirm. Those are great words and synonyms to use that I think are totally legitimate and reflect uh, the Greek understanding there of to show as righteous. And with that, thanks. Oh, we got one more. Ed. Is it wrong to want to prove that you are saved? Absolutely not. First Corinthians at the end of the book, uh, Scripture calls us and says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Right? So we've got to, on a regular basis, we have got to go before God and ask Him to search our hearts, search our life, search our mind for sins known, sins unknown. That's exactly what David did in his life. God, examine me, expose me. There are things that I sin against that I don't even know about. Reveal that to me. Uh, so that is first and foremost a very personal, intimate, ongoing conversation we need to have 
with uh, God our Father and Jesus our Savior. Uh, God, am I in the faith? Am I, am I truly saved? And reassure me through Your truth and the Spirit of God. And also as a person, uh, other believers do that for us. They can help us, right? Uh, when we're doing well, they can affirm that, our biblical behavior. And then when we deviate and when we're off course, they come and they rebuke us. They hold us accountable. They say, you're a professing Christian, but you're living like this. That is a compromise like Paul to Peter's face. That's wrong. Uh, but absolutely, that should be, that's part of holiness, sanctification, and growing in the grace of God. Another great question. Thanks a lot for doing that. And thanks for your spontaneity. That's awesome. Church planting rule number two, flexibility. Uh, with that, let me uh, pray and we'll commit our time to the Lord before we sing our last song. Father, we do thank You for this this blessed day You give us. And it's just a good reminder living in the area that we do of how perfect uh, the weather is today, of how privileged we are as a people, even in small ways by You. Help us to not take that for granted. Father, we thank You for this church, uh, which is Your church. Christ, You are the head of the church. And we are graced uh, to be a part of it as your children by your grace through faith uh, in your glorious gospel. God, thank you for the time of interaction we were able to have today, hopefully from a balance of many scriptures to inform us of how we need to think right, think a balanced life, viewing others properly, uh, viewing others with different opinions properly, and even examining ourselves before you. Thank You for Your love for us. Lord Jesus, thank You for dying and being punished for sinners. And thank You for conquering sin, death, and hell on our behalf by Your powerful resurrection. We pray that uh, You'd give us a, a good rest of the day. We pray, Lord, that we would glorify You with our life in our words, our actions, and our attitudes so that people will know we belong to the King. We commit all things to You, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.